couple weeks ago, I asked Ann if she wanted to go with me to get ice cream. I didn't really have to twist her arm much to convince her she was all in. And so we headed out to go get some frozen treats. We arrived at the ice cream store, and there were probably a dozen cars in the drive-thru, so we opted to go inside. And we got inside, the air conditioning was obviously broken, and there was a very short line, maybe because the air conditioning was down. But I got in the short line, and we placed our orders, and then we waited. And it's I wasn't really paying that much attention to what the time was, but it seemed like kind of a long time. And so maybe 15 or 20 minutes we'd waited and still no ice cream. So I went up and I asked the guy who had taken our order if uh, he had a status report on our ice cream. And he turned to one of the, the ladies working behind the scenes and said, do you know about this order? And she said, kind of curtly to him, I'm working on it right now. Oh, he got the message. I kind of got the message that my ice cream would be soon, but don't bother her. And so I stepped back and, and waited and time still kept going and going, no ice cream. I kept making visual contacts with my new friend who's working the register. And he keeps looking at me like, you know, it's going to happen soon. And so eventually I went up to him after another 20 minutes and said, kind of wondering where the ice cream situation stands. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to make it for you right now myself. Now, I love that. I mean, this kid is taking the problem and he's going to make a solution. I love his moxie. I have no idea if he knows how to make my ice cream treat, but he's gonna take it on himself, and he does, and he goes and makes it, and we got it. It wasn't perfect, you know, but man, we were grateful. I mean, especially after almost an hour of waiting, it turned out to be okay. Now, it wasn't the way that we thought it was gonna turn out. Have you ever had one of those situations where something didn't go the way you had thought it should go? Jonah had one of those. We're in week four of our series on Jonah, and Jonah had one of those moments where the situation didn't go the way he wanted it to go. Oh, it went the way he thought it might go, but it, it wasn't the way that he wanted it to go. And we read about it, the last verse of Jonah chapter 3. Philip covered it last week for us, but I want to re reread this for us today. It says, when God saw what they did, he's talking about the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah was called by God to go to the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh and to preach to them, but he refused, and instead he ran in the opposite direction. He boards a ship, and a storm hits, and after a short period of time, it's determined that Jonah is the cause of the storm, and so he is thrown overboard and eventually ends up inside of a big fish. And it's in that moment that he agrees to go to Nineveh. 
And when he preaches, when he gets there, he's going to preach. And when he preaches, chapter 3 tells us that the people there repented. And God stops his plan to bring judgment on the city. And that's where we pick up our story today. So we were going to look at Jonah, chapter 4, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along or you're tracking with us on the app. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1 says, but to Jonah... This seemed very wrong. What we just read in verse 10 of chapter 3. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah had a remarkable experience. One that, as far as anyone knows, no one in the history of the world ever had that experience. From Noah down to Billy Graham and every preacher in between, No one except Jonah has preached and had 100% converted. That's epic. Jonah saw an entire city turn to God. This was a huge movement because the Assyrians were evil. I mean, ruthlessly evil people, wicked people. And As we saw in the first chapter, Jonah's not happy about this because he's been carrying animosity toward the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians as a whole, for a long time. So their repentance, it really burns him up. Jonah knew God, and he knew his character. He knew God was merciful and would save even barbarians like the Ninevites. They were violent, lawless people. The city of Nineveh was consumed with ruthlessness. The Assyrians were feared in the ancient world, and for good reason. They had mastered the art of torture, and they bragged about it. They advertised it. They had pictures depicting their torture on the walls of their palaces. And they would brutalize their enemies through unspeakable means. And then they would leave their victims. They wouldn't kill them. They would leave them maimed. And they would serve as a living reminder of just how cruel the Assyrians could be. The brutality of the Assyrians was extreme, even for ancient standards of cruelty. They knew that it was an effective tool of psychological warfare. It was so effective that when the Assyrian army attacked a city, sometimes an entire population of a community would take their own lives rather than fall into the hands of the Assyrian army. It isn't surprising that Jonah has feelings against the Ninevites. This led to where Jonah basically didn't trust anything the Assyrians said or did. They might say they repented and turned to God, but then they not really do it. He fully expected that. It's not impossible to imagine that they would try something like that in Jonah's mind. Or worse, in Jonah's thinking, they might actually turn to God, and then God would spare them. And one thing that we have learned throughout the study of this book is that Jonah believes that the Assyrians 
They deserve to die. They do not deserve the opportunity to repent. Verse 2 says, He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. We read this and we realize that Jonah hasn't changed a bit. Oh, he went to preach, but Jonah was just going through the motions. He seems to have the same mindset that he had when God first called him to go to preach in Nineveh. He rejected that calling and he ran from God until he ended up in the belly of a huge fish. So it seemed he had changed his heart when he had agreed to obey God and go and preach to the Assyrians, but he was just going through the motions. Jonah actually goes to the city of Nineveh. He preaches there, but when he's finished, it's clear that his heart is not in this. In fact, he prayed, and in his prayer, we get a glimpse into what was going on in his heart. God is gracious, God is merciful. And Jonah says that is the very reason that he took off in the opposite direction and headed for Tarshish. He knew that it was possible that the Ninevites would repent and he couldn't take the chance that they would. And so he fled. And in his explanation of why he rejected God's call, he says that he knew God and the character of God, which made him believe that God might actually relent and not bring judgment down on the Assyrians. He specifically spells out the awesome qualities of God that didn't bring comfort to Jonah. They actually troubled him because he didn't want God to show those qualities to the Assyrians and end up saving them. Verse 2 The last part of verse 2 says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Let's talk about these characteristics that Jonah spotlights, these characteristics of God's character. Jonah launches into what I kind of read as a mini rant here in the middle of this prayer to God. And during this rant, he gives this great picture of the, American, the amazing character of God. The first thing he says is this, God is gracious. The Hebrew word used here means to yearn for. This gracious, the word used for gracious means to yearn for. And it indicates mercy towards someone who we have a, a deep or intimate relationship with. The Lord, the Lord yearns like that, for all people, like a parent longs for their child. And then he says, secondly, God is compassionate. The noun that he used here comes, is the word for, the noun used here for the word compassionate means womb. The idea Jonah is communicating is 
God feels toward people like an expecting mother feels toward her unborn baby. That's the meaning of compassionate. And then thirdly, he says God is slow to anger. And the emphasis of this characteristic is the contrast that God is patient. He's long-suffering with mankind rather than being quick to rush to anger. And then fourthly, he says God is abounding in love. The Hebrew word for love means intentionally seeking the best for others. Normally, it was used to describe God's love toward the people of Israel. But with it used here, it suggests that God's deepest love his intentionally seeking the best for others kind of love is also expressed to those outside of Israel. In fact, it's even extended to a group of barbarians living in Nineveh. And then the fifth characteristic he gives is a God who relents from sending calamity. So God has this plan to send destruction, and then he changes his mind. The word relent and the word turn in Hebrew are the same word. The idea is that God can turn away from carrying out his judgment. He can choose to do that. The people of Nineveh certainly were worthy of God's judgment, but they repented. God doesn't send what they deserved as a result of their repentance. They repented and God relented. God's message of love and forgiveness wasn't just for Jewish people. God loves people of all nations. The Assyrians didn't deserve God's forgiveness. They didn't deserve his love, but God spared them when they repented. God showed us his mercy to the Assyrians. But he also showed it to Jonah. When Jonah refused to take the mission that God had called his prophet to go and preach in Nineveh, God showed him mercy. In fact, in both instances, the Ninevites and the prophet Jonah, God demonstrated his love, his patience, and his forgiveness. God loves us even when we fail him. He also loves people from all around the world, all their cultures, different backgrounds, all races. When we accept his love, we need to understand that we need to learn to accept all those who he loves. God loves us unconditionally, and that's the example he calls us to even to those who may not love us. This character quality, these character qualities of God are as true today as they were 2,800 years ago when Jonah wrote this passage. You need to know this. You are loved by God. No matter what you may have done in your life, God loves you. Look at it this way. If God would love and forgive the Assyrians who were about as bad as it gets, then he will offer his love and forgiveness to everyone. And that includes even you. 
Well, we pick up the story again in verses three and four. It says, now, Lord, take away my life. This is Jonah talking. For it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now, this question that kind of popped into my mind, what is going on? Jonah now suddenly wants to die. Jonah is so upset about succeeding. The entire city repented. He's so angry because God did too much. You went too far. Saving a bunch of barbarians. Jonah believes that he has no purpose, no reason for going on now that God has done exactly what Jonah feared God would do. He's going to save these barbaric Assyrians. But here's the key truth. God is going to to do what God chooses to do. God is going to do what God chooses to do. Jonah was unable to dictate policy to God. And that's true for us. I mean, we can't tell God how it's going to be because God's going to do what God chooses to do. In Jonah's mind, it was crystal clear that the Assyrians deserved to be annihilated, not forgiven. But God's going to do what God chooses to do. So Jonah decides he's going to choose death. He thinks it's better to die than live in a world where the Assyrians aren't punished by God. Even though he understood God's character, Jonah just can't stomach the idea that the Assyrians are being forgiven. So God asks him a question in verse 4. He said, is it right for you to be angry? It's as if God is asking him, why are you so upset? Is it any of your business who I forgive? Imagine for a second the Monopoly board is laid out there and you're getting ready to play the game. And the Scotty dog wants to make a call to Parker Brothers because he, he has a problem with the fact that you only get $200 when you pass go. And then all of a sudden, when the Scotty dog gets done using your cell phone, the race car wants to use it because he's going to make the same call. He just thinks Park Place is way overpriced. I'm going to assume that most everyone thinks that little scenario is prolifically ridiculous. Because created objects have no authority to tell the creator how the game should be played. But that's what Jonah was trying to do. God, you got it all wrong. You should have wiped these savages out. Paul illustrates this whole idea in Romans 9, verses 20 and 21. He says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? 
Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? I love what Psalm 115 verse 3 says. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Jonah may disagree with the way God chooses to handle this situation. And we may disagree with God at times also, but we have no standing before him to question him because he's our creator and he is the ultimate authority over all things. Well, verse five continues. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, what Jonah is doing here is this. It took him three days to go through the entire city of Nineveh and preach. The message he proclaimed was simply this. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Once he's finished preaching, Jonah goes outside of the city and he builds himself a shelter on the east side of the city. And then he sat there and he waited to see what would happen to the city. He has about 35, maybe 36 days to see if God is going to bring judgment on Nineveh and overthrow the city. And then a strange kind of thing happens. We read it starting in verse 6. This is kind of odd. It says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He waited, he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. God had extended grace to Nineveh. And in kind of a symbolic way, this plant was God's grace that he extended to Jonah. The plant gave Jonah relief from the punishing heat, and he relished it. Jonah appreciated the plant while being angry that God had shown salvation to Nineveh. Jonah was willing to receive God's grace for himself, but he was reluctant to have it distributed to those he didn't feel deserved it. In fact, if we drill down a little further, we'll realize that Jonah got upset over the loss of a plant, yet, in contrast, he would not have had one bit of sadness had God poured out his judgment and destroyed Nineveh. Jonah was a prophet of the Almighty God, but in this moment, his priorities are all out of whack. Several years ago, when Ann and I were newly married, she came to my office in tears. She came in and told me that she had just wrecked our car. Now, this wasn't just any car. This was my Mustang. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that I didn't handle that very well. I was upset, 
And she was crying in my office when my boss stepped into the doorway. There he was, Wayne Smith. And he asked my wife the question, why are you crying? And she said through her sobs, I wrecked Monty's car. And then he asked the question, was anyone killed or injured? And I knew where this conversation was going. She said no. And then he looked at her and he said, then don't shed one more tear. You can't replace people, but you can replace cars. And as badly as I wanted him to mind his own business, I knew he was exactly right. I had prioritized that car over my wife. And she is far more important to me than 100,000 cars. Jonah was upset over a plant, and yet he had no concern for an entire people group. Why do we prioritize things over people? Why do we put certain activities ahead of the value we place on other people? Like Jonah, how do we so easily get our priorities out of whack? Well, for Jonah, he was wounded. Something happened. We don't know exactly what caused this wound, but Jonah has been carrying a deep-seated animosity toward the Assyrians for a while now. And that can happen to anyone. It can happen to us. We can carry animosity toward a person or a group of people for a period of time, maybe even for a lifetime. I wonder, as I talk about this, are there people in your world who've hurt you? Maybe recently, maybe a long time ago. And you're still carrying animosity toward them. Maybe it was an ex-husband or an ex-wife who was unfaithful. Maybe it was an alcoholic parent who embarrassed you routinely. They just ruined your childhood. As a young person, I remember hearing people talk about their hatred for the Japanese because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that was more than 30 years before when I first heard those things. Like Jonah, it's easy to see people who've hurt or offended us as enemies, whereas God's plan was to extend love and forgiveness to the Ninevites. And he's going to extend that to our enemies as well. I met recently with one of our mission partners. His name is Scott Graves, and he is, works with the Pioneer Bible Translators Mission Group. He shared with me about an exciting project that PBT is working on, and they are actually in the process of launching it this year. This is what it's called, The Last 
200 campaign. The last 200 campaign is a big push to finish the Great Commission that Jesus called us to fulfill. Now, somebody might say, finish the Great Commission. Yeah, they actually see a day when it's finished. It's a campaign that will have PBT translating the Bible and starting disciple-making movements among 200 of the least and last reached people groups on the planet. These are places where opposition is often fierce and where governments and leaders actively oppose the presence of Christians in their countries. The easy places to evangelize have all been taken up. They already have mission, missionaries and churches that are beginning. What remains are places that don't like Christians, and truthfully, they don't like it when Americans are there either. They see us as their enemies, both Christians and Americans. Places where it takes courage and new strategies. It means going to places we wouldn't normally go and building relationships with people who think differently and value different things than we do and live very different lives than the lives we as Christians live. It's like going to Nineveh. As PBT adds 200 more people groups to their work, and as their global mission partners do their part in this strategy as well, something extraordinary is going to be happening. Within this generation, by 2035, that's over the next 14 years, every Bible translation that is needed around the world will have been started. Then, by 2050, that's just 29 years from now, every Bible translation that has ever been needed in the history of the world will be completed. That's absolutely awesome. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew, the 24th chapter, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The church is on the cusp of doing this very thing that Jesus called us to do. But that will happen only when people see their mortal enemies the way God does with hope that they will accept God's free gift of forgiveness. So as I pull this message to a close, I want to give you two takeaways, two ways to apply this talk to your life. The first is this. I want to challenge you to look for ways to reach out to the Ninevites in your world. I know they exist, I know they're there. It might be a person that you've battled with recently or maybe a person you've battled with your entire life and they're not yet part of the family of God. Will you make sure that they know God's love? Will you make sure that you pray asking God 
to show you how to forgive them and show love to them and open doors so that you might have those opportunities. And then secondly, I want to ask you to join me to pray for the last 200 campaign. Pray for God to open the necessary doors of opportunity to connect with the hardest people groups to reach in the entire world. God's love and plan of salvation has always included the entire world. It's important that we understand God sees people from every walk of life, regardless of their race or culture. All people are loved by him. So we should love all people. Now you may be here joining us today and you feel you don't know my life. I have lived a life that I don't believe even God would want to love. But I hope that by what you've heard today, you know that's not true. You must know that God loves you unconditionally. He loves you regardless of what your life may have consisted of. I know that you may not be feeling worthy. Well, that's probably good because you're not worthy of God's love and forgiveness. No one deserves to be loved and forgiven by God. We haven't done anything to deserve it except Jesus paid the price for our sin to make it all possible. So if you're considering the idea of taking a step to accept Jesus, you want a change in your life, you're tired of the sin-filled life, and you would love to have all of that sin washed away, drop me a note at notestomani at nccleX.org. We'd love to connect with you, talk to you further about the steps you can take to make Jesus the Lord of your life. If you haven't accepted God's forgiveness, don't let one more day go by without doing that. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that, as Jonah pointed out, you are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love, and you relent when we repent. And God, for that, I am so thankful. I pray, God, for people who have never taken that step to accept Jesus and have their sins washed away, that they would find the courage to reach out and that they would surrender to you, Lord. I pray for their lives to be changed and their names to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life with the promise of eternity, a part of their future now with you. Lord, I pray for us who find ourselves sometimes like Jonah, questioning what you're doing or questioning your plans or your will or your, your word and having finding ourselves in opposition with something you've called us to do. Lord, will you help us to accept your will? If we're just going through the motions, God, please wake us up. We are sorry for the times 
that we have tried to force our will in place of yours. God, show us how to share your love with the Ninevites in our lives. And God, we pray your blessing on this initiative, the last 200 campaign. Lord, use us as a church to help fuel the mission of reaching those who are the most difficult people to reach. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What an incredible four weeks it has been as we have walked through and unpacked this story of Jonah. And hey, this this may have been your very first time walking through this story, and it, it didn't quite end how most people would think, right? But I think that's why I love the story so much, because it's so raw from the sense of human emotion as Jonah is so frustrated with God, but ultimately we see God's love, His deep and wide love for us, right? That none are too far gone. So hey, today maybe you were listening and God was was kind of tugging at your heart and the Holy Spirit's prompting you to take a next step. I just want to encourage you to reach out. We would love nothing more than to come alongside you and pray with you and help you take whatever that next step in your faith journey is. And you can do so right now in the comments. You can click on the link in the comments below, or you can just reach, send us a message on whatever platform you're viewing on today. Okay, we hope to join with you in taking your next step this morning. Hey, it's always such an incredible time as we join together to worship in many, many ways because worshiping is just more than singing, right? We've, we've joined together, we've worshiped through community, through scripture, through prayer, through singing through communion, and now through gifts of generosity. And hey, however you give, if it's online, if you drop it off in the mailbox out front, or if you give here on campus, hey, we just want to say thank you. Because without you, without you saying yes and taking that bold step of faith, we don't get to do incredible things here that that have an impact both locally and globally. I just want you to know that like your, your gifts of generosity are having a kingdom impact. So hey, thank you so much. What an incredible day to join together for worship. And I hope that you'll join with us next week as we kick off our new series, Waymaker. Until then, send us a message again. We want to connect if that's you today. Hey, if not, we hope to see you next week right here online or maybe even in person. Hey, we'll see you then.